Welcome to Ask Dr. Mia podcast. And today I have a special guest, Dr. Salani Sharma with me. I'm going to let Dr. Sharma introduce herself and tell us about what she does. Hi, Dr. Mia. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm really happy to be here and talk about aging well. I am the medical director of the Orthopedic Integrative Health Center in Philadelphia. And I've also written a book called The Pain Solution. It's really an anti-inflammatory approach to living and aging well. So I think this will be a great overlap of our interests and ways to serve our audience. Absolutely. Dr. Sharma, tell me about what inspired you to write this book and what are some major key messages that you want the audience to understand? I really have a pain crisis. I think we all know we have an opioid crisis, but it's because we have a pain crisis. And as we were talking about before the recording started, we tell people as physicians, as healthcare providers, don't use narcotic medications, don't use anti-inflammatories, but then we don't tell them what to do instead. So there's a big void. What should you do instead? And so hopefully that's some of what the book does and our discussion today does is there's lots of things you can do instead to lower your overall pain. And it starts with lowering your overall inflammation level in your body, which, as you've mentioned in your other podcasts, that can contribute to these conditions like dementia and other age-related diseases like heart disease as well. So if we can reduce inflammation, it's not only good for pain, it's good for whole body health. Yeah, absolutely. I think the people who are listening to this podcast are interested and they're proactive about their health, whether it's for themselves or for their loved ones who are older. And I think I see it a lot in my clinical practice as well, where I have a lot of older adults who have chronic pain, chronic back, knee, joint pain, and we are hesitant to give them anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen, Aleve, because of potential side effects and bleeding risks. But we can only give so much Tylenol before people say, well, (laughs) Tylenol doesn't work. And then we get stuck in thinking, should we or should we not start an opioid with, of course, all of the side effects that go with starting opioid for chronic pain. Just as you said, there is a gap in what people can do to help with their pain and take a proactive approach to their pain. So tell me about the book and the five steps to relieve and purveying back muscle and joint pain. Sure. So I think sort of expanding on what you said too, before we jump right into it is there's health span and there's lifespan. And I don't know how familiar your audience is with those subjects, but lifespan is the number of years we live. So, you know, how old do you live to? But health span is the number of years you live in good health. And in the United States, the average gap between health span and lifespan is 16 years. So it's those last 16 years, which is something to a lot of your patients that you work with, you see day to day. But that's what we want to increase is sort of that match between health span and lifespan. We want to extend someone's health span so that they have more years of health and good function where they're active and can participate in life. So that's really our goal. And system that I came up with that you mentioned, it's called the Relief 5R Plan for 5Rs. And it starts out with refuel, which is nutrition, talks about revitalize, which is exercise, recharge refers to sleep, and refresh refers to stress, and relate is to relationships. And so it's sort of addressing inflammation and pain from each of those five levels. And we talk about inflammation and pain and stress. It's physical, mental, and emotional stress. All of those stressors contribute to pain and inflammation. And that's why something like relationships is mentioned in there too. And that's not something that maybe your physician or provider has time to talk about typically in a visit, but it's something that can impact your health. And so it's really important to address. And that's sort of why the program includes that as well. Yeah, that's really important. And I think we know more and more from research and aging that people who have a lot of deep friendships and social connections do better 
both physically and cognitively. I think about my own grandparents who are, two of them are still in China. I'm thinking particularly of my paternal grandmother. She is 90 and she is one of the most optimistic and social people I know. She still has a lot of friends. Even though she has lost a lot of friends in her life, she still has a lot of friends. She enjoys singing Chinese opera, traveling. She can't travel as much as she used to, but she still seeks out those social connections. And I think that's definitely both anecdotally and from epidemiological research. We know that people who have social connections do much better as they age. So I'm really excited that I included that you included relate as it relates to social connections in your five R's. Thank you. And you had a personal antidote, which is so meaningful. And the same in my family, I've seen that with the pandemic. Unfortunately, some of my elderly family members really suffered in terms of their mental health and their cognition by losing that social connection. I mean, I have a family member who would go out Thursday, Friday, Saturday with friends, and then suddenly it was nothing. And the cognitive decline is just striking. So I think, like you said, it's both evidence-based and anecdotally, we see that in our lives. Also, when you think about something like prison, the worst punishment is solitary confinement, right? So we know that that's the worst thing you can do to someone is to confine them mentally and physically. They've actually done studies, and I mentioned this in the book, that people who are in solitary confinement have more orthopedic and physical pain afterwards too, aside from the mental and emotional burden. So there's a really clear connection. So yes, I'm really glad we're talking about their relationship piece as well. Yeah, let's start with the first R the refuel, and tell us about the anti-inflammatory diet. Sure. So the anti-inflammatory diet is an approach to reduce inflammation all over your body, not just where you have aches and pains, but all over. And it's similar to the Mediterranean diet in a lot of ways. So it's really heavy plants and vegetables. If you're talking about meats, it's more seafoods and having meats two or three times a week. So we're not trying to be aggressive and change someone's whole personality in person and say everyone has to be vegetarian. We like the more of a plant-based slant and thinking of meats and treats sort of as like desserts and meats are like a treat. They're not necessarily like an every meal thing. And there's a lot of data that lowers whole body inflammation to have a plant-based diet. If people are going to eat meat, which again is fine, you want to just make sure it's high quality meat, not really processed meat like deli meat, things like hot dogs and things such as that, which can increase more inflammation. Yeah, I personally feel like I've noticed that I feel more energetic when I eat lower processed food, particularly thinking about lunch. I think you gave a similar example in your book as well, when you're busy working a shift in a hospital or at work and you reach for the easy things, the highly processed foods and soda to get that temporary boost. But then a couple hours later, I crash and have like a terrible headache. I definitely notice that what I eat, particularly as I work through a busy day, it's really important. It is. It's so important. And it's hard because I don't blame anyone. I mean, when you go to a doctor's office, some of these medical buildings or even the hospital, there's sometimes fast food restaurants embedded in these buildings. It's everywhere we go. It's in our schools. It's in our hospitals. So it's in our face. And it does take a little bit of effort and energy to plan ahead. But in the long run, like you're saying, it's worth it for the end of the day not to get that sort of crash later. And of course, in the long term for your health, but even the short term to not get that crash with a heavy processed food or a heavy sugar meal, that's really important. And there's really easy fixes. I mean, even things like having little guacamole packs, if you have time to make your own on the weekend or hummus packs, things like that, that are still sort of like to go items but they're not as processed. The best is, of course, if you can make things over the weekend and batch cook. But even if that's not available, just making healthy choices within your choices. So avoiding the processed stuff, going for low sugar or no added sugar and increasing your water intake. Those are easy things you can do without spending a lot of time or money. 
Yeah, I oftentimes hear from my patients and their families that for some reason, as people get older, their water intake really changes, or they don't drink enough water. I encourage people to add a little bit of fruit or berries and something to make the water more appealing, or adding a little bit of flavor into water. I think perhaps that has more appeal than just plain water. What are some small fixes that you suggest for people to eat more of or drink more of? So one of them is like you said, having either a fruit or vegetables. So if anyone's ever been to a spa, so they have cucumber water, orange slice water. So having some of that makes it feel special and like something different. Sparkling water is nice way to go as well. You could also do if you're transitioning from sugary drinks to more water, you could have your cup be 80% water and 20% iced tea, like a sugar iced tea, and sort of dilute it and gradually get out of that sugar taste. You can change your taste buds over time. You can retrain them to not be so used to sugar and to appreciate sugar more. So that might be an easy way to do it. There's something called microboost, which we talked about earlier before we start recording, which are just little steps that add up to big pain relief. And that's some of the micro boosts. We say add water. Well, that's really nice, but it's a practical, how do you do that? And that's what we're talking about now. It's trying the sparkling water. It's adding some vegetables like cucumbers or some fruits like strawberry or watermelon slices to sort of soak in the water and give you that flavor. And it's doing it gradually. Nothing's all or none. So if you're drinking three cans of soda a day, it's try to get down to one can for the first week. And then the next week, maybe transition to a sparkling water every other day and and ease your way into it. I think when we try to jump from all to none, that we set ourselves up for failure and then we feel bad about ourselves. That really demotivates us. So trying to take little baby steps in the right direction And really recognizing when you are able to accomplish that and pat yourself on the back can make a big difference. With these micro boosts and things that we're talking about, sometimes I have patients who say, who are a little suspicious and they say, that all sounds nice, doc, but I don't think what you're going to suggest to me is going to actually help my pain. For what period of time do you recommend for people to try some of these small changes to see if they do notice an improvement in their pain? I think you can see some changes within two weeks. But you have to be dedicated in doing them every day, right? So it can't be like a here and now and then. I do it two days this week, two days next week. Oh, there's no difference. It's sort of doing it every day and ideally doing one small change from each of the five relief, five R things we talked about from each category so that you're sort of taking a hammer and chiseling away and coming at it from five different angles. And we're not putting all our eggs in one basket and saying, okay, this one nutrition change is going to make all the difference. We're going to say, okay, this nutrition change is going to help a little bit. Maybe for someone, sleep is more important for their pain and inflammation. So that little sleep tweak we're going to make plus the nutrition change is going to work synergistically to give you more relief. And if after two weeks, things don't seem like they're improving much, it might be trying a different micro boost or trying a different change to customize it to what works for you and your lifestyle. Yeah, definitely. I think that relates to a lot of other geriatric principles in the sense that when you think of the things that are common as in older adults that cause disability or morbidity and problems in terms of their function, a lot of times there's multiple reasons lying behind a fall or multiple reasons getting behind someone getting weaker or multiple reasons why someone is having pain, like what we're talking about. So speaking of sleep, that's another huge topic for me and for my patients as well. Almost everyone is sleeping poorly. They might say that they're falling asleep fine, but then they wake up early. I know that as our bodies age, we tend to sleep a little bit less, but I also think that the circadian rhythm gets earlier where people might wake up super early in the middle of the night and then can't fall back asleep. And then a lot of my patients end up 
taking naps during the day, and then not being able to sleep at night. So what are some tips that you would suggest for folks in terms of revitalizing their sleep? I think that is definitely something to that with circadian rhythms changing as you age. Part of it's having the sleep hygiene, right? So having a sleep routine at bedtime where you do the same things to sort of make a cozy cave at home. No screens 30 minutes before bedtime, for example, is one I really like. The literature really shows two hours, but if you can start with 30 minutes, I think that's a great way to go. And so you could read a book or a newspaper or a magazine or something like that at bedtime. And then having a practice and a plan. So when you wake up in the middle of the night, what do you do? And do you have a mindfulness exercise that you go to in your head, something to sort of calm you down? Or does your mind sort of spiral when you sort of get a little anxious and think, oh, geez, I'm 3 a.m. up already. What am I going to do? My whole day is going to be ruined. And then unfortunately, that sort of spikes your cortisol and gets you more awake, which is not what we want. So kind of having a plan and saying, okay, this is normal. As I age, my sleep might be a little off and I have to have a plan on how to deal with it. That being said, I don't think that naps are the end of the world. I would say probably you want to cut them to less than an hour. I've seen that sometimes with older patients take a nap and it's like the whole afternoon. And then as you suggested, that really sets up their night to be dysfunctional again. So limiting it to an hour and I wouldn't take a nap after three o'clock. I wouldn't start a nap after three for sure. I'm just thinking about circadian and melatonin peaks and rises. You don't want to get to the point where your melatonin is starting to rise and then you kind of wake up and your cortisol and it just gets all jumbled. So I think sort of limiting how late and how long your naps are if you're going to nap but still shooting for seven to eight hours of sleep in a 24-hour period, I think is reasonable. And it's interesting that you talk about aging because by training my physical medicine rehabilitation physician and then pain management integrative medicine as well as an acupuncturist, but most people have heard of rehab, which is rehabilitation or covering from an injury or trauma or surgery. There's also something called prehab or prehabilitation, which is preparing for an upcoming stressor. In a lot of ways, that's what aging is. It's a stressor in a different way in the body. And so I think we can all prehab our bodies sort of regardless of our age, whether the person listening to this is a healthcare provider, someone who you'd see as a patient or a caretaker. I think, and you and I, we can all sort of prepare. We know things are going to change. We just talked about expected changes in circadian rhythm as we age. There's no reason why we can't start living in a circadian way now and optimizing our health now with anti-inflammatory foods, sleep hygiene, and all the things we're talking about now. And so I think if we're more proactive, then hopefully it won't be such a hard transition. Absolutely. Prehab is such an interesting and I think potentially really helpful thing as people are preparing for a big surgery or some sort of stressor to their life. But I think there's a lot in terms of chronic stress that a lot of people experience as well. And I know the literature for exercise is tremendously strong. Exercise is basically good for everything, (laughs) especially as you get older. It's good for your brain, it's good for your heart, but actually getting people to exercise seems to be the hard point where people say, oh, I have too much pain and I can't exercise or I can't walk around the block because my knee starts hurting. What is your suggestion to folks who are experiencing that? So I see a lot of patients like that, the Integrative Health Center, especially patients who have had knee replacements and hip replacements and they haven't recovered the way they anticipated. For a lot of people, the hardware looks good, but it's some tendonitis or bursitis around the joint replacements that is really nagging and um, limiting their walking. We talk about preparing, like having a plan. So in breaking up the walks, I think there's this wrong emphasis of all or nothing in our society. You either do that 35-minute walk or you do nothing. And that's just not really realistic. So I'd rather have someone take three 10-minute walks than take no walk. And some of the literature shows that's actually better to spread out your exercise movement throughout the day as opposed to sort of just being a warrior and getting it done and then just being sedentary the rest of the day. 
And if 10 minutes too too much, then start with three five-minute walks. That's too much and start doing a circle around your house, even indoors, for two minutes and do that every two hours. And if that means afterwards you have to use some lidocaine patches or Voltaren gel for a little bit, then then so be it. We have to sort of do a little pain management to work around it to still get that exercise in because it's so vital. I actually talk about the secret sauce of exercise and exercise, like you mentioned, is just great for everything. It's great for health span. It's great for lifespan. But it releases natural endorphins, which are painkillers. It activates your endocannabinoid system or your endogenous cannabis system. It activates serotonin, which can help with mood. And it activates myokines, which help with inflammation. So this is sort of like an antidepressant plus a narcotic plus Advil plus medical marijuana wrapped up in one, essentially no side (laughs) effects. There's really no downside. It's just adapting it to what works for you. If some of your patients are more sedentary, a lot of groups, I think Kaiser has a good one and Johns Hopkins too, have chair yoga for free videos online. So you can do some seated activities. You can get a pedometer for your foot, sort of like an under the desk elliptical where you just move your legs and you can park that in front of the television or iPad if you like. But there's definitely workarounds. It's just having someone understand how important it is. Then we can figure out how to do it. Yeah, definitely. I have, I met one of my patients recently who actually teaches chair yoga and she was showing me a lot of the moves that you can modify for people who have a hard time being on their hands and knees as older adults. And I think folks who age well are oftentimes people who have been very consistent with exercising. A lot of geriatricians are also very healthy in that way because they understand the literature and know that people who age well are people who exercise. I haven't thought about the pedometer idea under the foot because that simulates the same kind of exercise that you do in the gym. But because of the pandemic and a lot of other situations, sometimes my patients are not going out of the house to the gym or that it's too much Mm -hmm. effort to do that. So that's a great idea. I think I'll take that back and get people to think about that as well. (laughs) Uh, So the free exercises about chair yoga, I'll put that in the show notes so that people can find that link Mm -hmm. as well. I know the National Institute on Aging also has really helpful little videos that are 10, 15 minutes on YouTube. And oftentimes I give my patients um, that information as well, just to encourage them that any little movement is better than no movement. And I find in my own exercise journey, which I'm no marathoner by any means, but sometimes when I'm trying to motivate myself to exercise, I tell myself, I just have to move for five minutes. But then after the five minutes, oftentimes I I say, oh yeah, that was really short. I can go another 10 more minutes. (laughs) That's kind of how I fool myself into actually doing a workout rather than just sitting on my butt. I think that's true for a lot of things. And James Clear has a lot of research on that too, is if you can just take one little step and get the ball going, you're more likely to keep moving. Same thing with healthy eating too. If you said, oh, I mostly had fruits and vegetables today. I wonder if I can sort of skip the dessert tonight. Once you get the ball rolling, you're sort of more motivated to keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. The conversation with Dr. Sharma was so jam-packed with tips. We're going to break this into two episodes. And we talked about refuel, which is related to food that we revitalize, which is related to exercise, recharge, which is sleep. Come back next week for part two of this conversation, where we will finish out the five R's to pain relief and check out Dr. Sharma's book, The Pain Solution, Five Steps to Relieve and Prevent Back Pain, Muscle Pain, and Joint Pain. That's available on Amazon.
And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice and share this episode with those you love. Thank you.